Do you hear that sound? That is the sound of waves crashing against a bay. But not just any bay. It's a Baywatch. Because this is a Baywatch podcast. In fact, this is Baywatch Rookie School. A podcast where two men who have never watched Baywatch before try and watch Baywatch. I'm Michael Eisen. And I'm Morgan Thrapp. And we don't know how to lead into a podcast. No, we don't. <laughs> Morgan, last week's episode, maybe not as exciting. You know, there's some there, there's some kids getting lost, uh, and there's heat, and that was a heat wave. But this, this week's episode is called The Second Wave, and it's not the second wave of heat. No, no. In fact, it's really just the first wave of excitement. I mean, I would argue it's the second wave of heat, considering how the episode starts off. But I would definitely agree that this episode does a lot more for me than last week's does. If more of the episodes are like this, I, I'm in. Uh, you've got me hooked. I agree. I think this is by far the most exciting episode we've, we've watched. Uh, we've only watched four episodes. And also, if you're counting the pilot. So I imagine there's going to be more interesting stuff out there. But this is, this is the best. So this episode was written by Jill Donner. And directed by Scott Brazil, a great name. Also, I've forgotten to mention that we've had the same director of photography for the last four episodes, James Pergola. Great job, James Pergola, catching all the butts, all the hair, <laughs> all the abs, the hips, the lips, and fingertip. Thank you, mm -hmm. James. Uh, and so this episode was also originally aired October 13th, 1989. So we're getting close to 1990. We're getting close to a new decade, getting close to my favorite decade, the 90s. And I'm excited to see what happens once you get into the 90s. I'm honestly surprised this episode didn't air on Halloween, considering the way it starts. Ooh, well, we're going to get into that in a sec. The last thing I want to note is that this is the first appearance of Daniel Quinn as Jimmy. It also features Mariska Hargitay as Lisa, and then good old David Spade as a character named BJ. Now, IMDB thought it was interesting enough to tell me that he plays BJ here, and then in the show Eight Simple Rules, he plays a character called CJ. And Pamela Anderson, <laughs> who plays CJ in Baywatch, plays a woman named Cassie in Eight Simple Rules. And they thought that was enough of a trivia, trivia segment. <laughs> uh, it was the only trivia about this episode. Because trivia is very hard to find about this show. I don't know why, but like for as popular as this show was, no one knows anything about it. Yeah, this episode features another recurring segment, which is me Googling lyrics from one of the songs in this episode to try and figure out what song it is, because I actually kind of liked it and not having any luck. Well, lucky for you, I transcribed the lyric. Yes. Again. I was hoping so. I'm going to do this. This is going to be... We're now officially going to make this a recurring segment where I'm going to transcribe the lyric to a original song from the episode and read them back to you because it, they're just too good to not do that. Yes. I'm excited. Uh, I think, Morgan, let's get into the episode. Yeah, absolutely. This one opens much more intensely than any episode so far. We've got your standard opening scene and then... The next scene is a cult meeting, I guess. Sort of, yeah. Where a bunch of guys who, it's a little unclear how old they are. I feel like they're portrayed as teens, but the actors are in their like early 30s. Right. But they're all gathered around a campfire on the beach. And there's one guy who seems to be new to the group who 
has a surfboard with him, and one of the other guys in the group is bullying him to get him to burn his surfboard because we have to sacrifice a virgin surfboard in a cult ritual to get sick waves. <laughs> a, sur- a virgin board or a virgin? They do say virgin board, but... They also threaten to burn a virgin if not a virgin board. True, true. My favorite bit from the scene is when the guy with the virgin surfboard... Which is David Spade. Oh, that's David Spade? Yes. Oh, okay. I did not recognize him. Because this is his second movie role, or second role, period. In a year or two, I think he'd go on to do Just Shoot Me, which you had never seen before. But that was like his first famous role. uh, Unless you count BJ, Man with Surfboard in Baywatch. But the guy who we will later learn is named Jimmy tells BJ, will you get on with the California swing, Beige, before (laughs) dousing BJ's surfboard in gasoline and setting it on fire while everyone dances in a circle around it. And it's so fucking weird. We've never seen anything like this in the admittedly only Four episodes counting the pilot. I've never but, seen really anything like this on a show that I would consider for normies. Like, this is a show for normies, right? Like, not... Yeah, totally. Not not weirdos like us. <laughs> Honestly, the closest thing this reminded me of was Manos Hands of Fate, which I believe I've shown you parts of. You have, and then we also watch Manos Hands of Felt afterwards. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, this very much reminds me of the weird lesbian orgy on the beach. Oh, in yeah. In Manos Hands of Fate. It's shot very similarly. It's, it was so weird, like, not knowing anything about Manos. And then I was like, I, I can't watch this alone. I'm known mm-hmm. for being a guy who loves bad movies. Everyone questions, like, how I'm able to sit through these things. I could not sit through Manos. Like, it was so boring. And then oh, I-, I sat with you and watched it, and I was like... No, this is kind of genius in terms of it's so bad. It, the room is bad, but the room is like professionally shot and like it has some semblance of story bits. They're just bad story bits. Manos does not. It is no story bit whatsoever. Yeah, it does help that the only way we made it through Manos together was that I fast forwarded through most of the movie because it's completely unwatchable. And we were drinking probably (laughs) that too. I think so. Yeah. Anyway, we wrap up this cult scene with a weird montage of everyone dancing around the surfboard while music that I have in my notes as knockoff Phil Collins plays Mm -hmm. because it kind of sounds like the drum solo from In the Air Tonight, but bad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. After that, we cut to Gina making breakfast. Mm. Um, Craig comes in in my favorite outfit, which is a button down with the wrist buttons buttoned, a tie, shorts, and what looks like New Balance sneakers. It's a look I hope to rock someday. Like maybe like in my 40s, I hope to rock it, but not now. I I just, uh, my mind hasn't been put to mush enough yet. (laughs) Yeah, I would, I would consider an outfit like that if there were more color. It's such a, like, bland outfit as it is. Well, that's because he's a bland person. That's true. But we don't have to focus on it long because Eddie knocks on the door and Craig complains that Eddie's coming over all the time. And Gina says that 
don't worry, it's not a routine yet. It takes at least 14 or 15 times until it's a routine. (laughs) So Gina and Craig let Eddie in, and Eddie comes up with the really bad excuse that, oh, I'm just here to borrow some sugar. I'm like, look, I've seen this in the room. It's never sugar. It's always like, (laughs) I want your tuition money or Lisa, please marry me. Or like, Mark, how could you do this? Good night, sweet prince. You know, it's always one of those excuses. It's I want to join in on your foreplay pillow fight. Well, it's not a four. Oh, you mean foreplay, not yes. for some. Yes. 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 It's, it's definitely a foreplay f- pillow fight. But also like foreplay from someone who like read the definition of foreplay and then had to like make up what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of what it is. Yeah, because Tommy Wiseau, much like Neil Breen, has to contractually ensure that women will be physical with him in his movies. It's, anyway. Wait, um, one point. One point I need to add, <laughs> which is I don't respect... Okay, I do kind of respect both Neil Breen and Tommy Wiseau for, for not great reasons. I just respect the fact that they put something out there. Sure. Neil Breen is, in my mind, clearly like knows what he's doing, while Tommy Wiseau does not. Um, yeah. But Neil Breen somehow outdoes Tommy Wiseau. It just has a different vibe because you know that Neil Breen like has to know. But Neil Breen, all of his like models or the women that he like somehow contractually makes hang out with him on a movie are like <laughs> uh, floor show models or like trade show models. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that always weirds me out because these are people who are meant to like advertise oh carfax.com or like oh all state insurance and then their next like credit is double down with neil breen <laughs> where neil breen just shows you his butt for 20 minutes in a pool oh, and then eats a bunch of tuna oh, <laughs> like it's it it warms the cockles of my heart that someone's <laughs> resume is just so odd like that. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, back to the show. Yeah. The next thing that happens is Gina and Eddie, much like the two of us, mock Craig's fashion. I love this scene. I quite enjoyed. It was pretty great because what happens is that Gina is like, I just need to tell you, like, your outfits are getting weirder and weirder, and I wasn't going to say a word. And Eddie says... I wasn't gonna either. And it keeps on going on. Like, Eddie is, like, part of this couple. And then she asks Craig, I just want you to open up to me. And and Eddie says, I want you to open up to me, too. <laughs> it's kind of, like, actually funny. And I thought, when did this show get a sense of humor? Yeah, I thought that was honestly one of the best moments in the series so far. Agreed. Because it's played so well. And it's so understated. Like, so many of the big acting moments in this show are big acting moments. Mm-hmm. They're actors being like, if I play at a level 20, then suddenly all my acting is good and deserving of an award. But this was, like, super understated and just felt very, like, real and funny. Yeah, I, I thought it was super cute, and I want more moments like this. Yeah, absolutely. Craig explains that the reason he's doing all of this is because he's working from home now and he's not used to it. So he needs to adjust to it by wearing a button down in shorts like he does in court, I guess. It doesn't really make sense, but you know. Yeah, I mean, Craig's got some time to work through some of his weird clothing 
problems. I mean, why doesn't he just dress like a lifeguard? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to bridge that gap, and it just doesn't work, my dude. Like, Yeah. Next, we cut to Shawnee's tower, and Mitch runs up, sweating and out of breath, and tells Shawnee that it's time to kick the surfers out of the water, and she should throw up the black ball flag, which is apparently the universal symbol for... Surfers can't be in the water. Now it's time for swimmers. I, I don't know how they're expected to know this. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know all my flags. Like, fuck, I don't know what the flag of Kazakhstan is. How am I supposed to know the <laughs> please don't surf here flag? Well, and even if you do know what the flag is, how are you supposed to see it? Because as we see in the next scene, all of them immediately see it as soon as she puts the flag up. I, was, I thought she was just going to, like, make a noise and, like, they're going to be like, oh, well, that's an alarm or right. something. I don't I don't know. But no, it's just raise the flag. Yeah. But, yeah, we uh, we cut to the surfers who are all very mad that they're getting kicked out of the water. And Jimmy, who is one of the surfers in a very cool swim suit, like, I hate him as a person. He's a good character. but I do love his fashion has one of my favorite lines of the episode, which is, we're not going in because of some squid-sucking lifeguard. <laughs> I don't know what that even means, and I, I love have it. no idea. Jimmy is yet another in the line of, uh, at first, comically cartoonish villains. Mm-hmm. However, he, not to spoil a lot, he changes throughout the episode. He's not comically cartoonish anymore. Yeah, definitely. No, I think his character progression throughout this episode is much better than I was expecting. Right. He feels he feels like Scott from last episode in the beginning here. Wait, who's Scott? Uh, isn't his name Scott? One of the two kids. The the guy on the power ski who kills the girl with Hobie and Ron. Oh, Scott and Ron or whatever. I, yeah. I don't. That's two episodes ago. That's old news. Two episodes ago, yeah. Whatever la- his name is. Last episode was Ricky and Mikey. Right. Right, right, right. But yeah, he felt like that same level of just like after school special bully who's like trying to prove to you how bad it is to bully people. Oh, exactly. Which means he actually behaves like a real bully sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the surfers crash into some old guy and he gets real mad and yells at them. And then Shawnee yells at them to get out of the water, but the surfers aren't having it. So Eddie shows up and the lead surfer, who we later learn is Jimmy, seems to know Eddie, but neither of them are willing to say why they know each other. They they hint at it a little bit by Jimmy saying, or man, soon to be known as Jimmy, mm-hmm. says something about, like, growing up in Philly uh, and something about the Beach Boy, something like that. And then Eddie, like, pauses for a minute and then comes back with, do I know you? Um, which gives us the sign that he absolutely knows who he is. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, it's very clear throughout this scene that Eddie definitely knows who this guy is. But yeah, Shawnee and Eddie talk for a second, and Shawnee asks why that guy knows Eddie, and Eddie goes, I gotta go, and just runs off. (laughs) Which, like, 
That's the sketchiest possible thing you could do. He has trauma. That's that's the key. Yeah, no, it does make sense later in the episode. But at that moment, it just felt very like, all right, dude, like you're not selling this to anyone. Right. But yeah, Eddie's running down the beach and Jimmy shows up and him and Eddie talk for a bit. And it becomes very clear that there was jail involved. And it's not really clear at this point whether both of them were in jail together or exactly what's going on. Right. They they say that they did time together uh uh, which i mean obviously means jail but it's weird because like eddie's image that we've had up till now is sort of that like he's maybe like a bad boy but not like not like classic bad boys where they're like they wear a collared shirt or a leathered collared shirt and they listen to loud music and they're just mean to women. He just seems awkward and shy and anxious. And he hides all of his trauma behind a veil. And thus, he doesn't interact with people. So you wouldn't really pick him out as a guy that did time in jail. Yeah, if anything, Eddie feels like he had maybe been abused as a kid or something like that. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, that whole plot line gets forgotten for a little bit. Mm-hmm. While we cut to Jill and Trevor, there are two kids running down the beach with an inflatable raft, and Jill tells the two of them that inflatables aren't allowed in the water, and Trevor says, well, that's a county rule, and on my beach, I say it's okay, and Jill says, well, the water's county property, so fuck off, you don't get to decide this. And the the kids say, "Well, Trevor is our lifeguard, not Jill." I I have the I have the specific line. Oh yes, it's so good. The one of the two kids tells Jill, "You tell her, Trevor. He's our lifeguard." <laughs> and it's the most Fuck like you, sing-songy kid has never acted before in his life. Like I, to be clear, I very much do not blame this seven-year-old kid for being a bad actor. I blame right. the director for not, like, bothering to take literally a second take of this scene. But it was very funny and very cute. It was, it was adorable. Yeah. Jill and Trevor banter for a little bit, and Trevor says another great line, which is, there's only one rule on my beach. No one drowns. So far, it's never been broken. I also like in this scene how Mitch is still running around He's he's implied earlier that he has some sort of exam later. Mm -hmm. So that's why he's running. And he comes up and he goes, oh, hey, Jill. Oh, kids, no inflatables. Because Mitch is just, you know, knows everything. And then immediately the kids are like, oh, it's like everybody respects Mitch, Uh, which I guess, again, makes him seem more real. And I, I hate the fact that I like Mitch. Yeah. Yeah, it it kind of sucks that the kids are willing to respect Mitch when they're not willing to respect Jill. But, you know, sexism in the 80s. Wasn't it great? Glad we're asked that now. I'm glad we got rid of sexism back in uh, 2015. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, 2016. Thanks, Trump. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. Anyway, we're going to move on to the next scene now, which is back to Gina's apartment and Craig's apartment as well, but... Gina's Mm -hmm. the only one home at the moment, and she's cooking something in a walk, and it's the first time, and it's supposed to be 
real weird and exotic and look at this fancy elitist coastal food she's cooking. But, you know, it's just like a standard stir fry. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy shows up and buzzes the intercom and Gina lets him in because he says that he knows Eddie and Eddie said to meet him at the apartment. Mm-hmm. And so Jimmy comes in and starts just kind of being like vaguely menacing in a weird, charming kind of way. And then Eddie shows up because he was at the market and was buying some stuff and couldn't get the artichokes because they were too soft. <laughs> Which I don't think that's how artichokes work. But No, also, it's not how artichokes work. Yeah, yeah. My next note says, what the fuck, were they art thieves? Because <laughs> Jimmy keeps talking about galleries and paintings like he was like some high-end art thief. And as we'll find out later, he was not, in fact, an art thief. No, no, not um, at all. I mean, clearly he was an art thief, but with that mullet. <laughs> he just like goes to art shows. He goes, oh, indubitably, I like this piece of art. And then they go, oh, is that a vintage rat tail you have? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, man, I kind of want to see a gallery exhibit now of just like ripped guys with rat tails. Okay, so that'd be such an interesting throwback. Let me exhibit. let me set the scene. Let me set yes. the scene. You yep. walk into a gallery. It's it's the first showing by classic UFC fighter Iceman Chuck Liddell. And <laughs> and you walk in and there's all these pictures there for you to buy. Now, the clientele is mostly rat-tailed mullet men. Um <laughs> the RMM as I like to call them. You know, Dibs on rat-tailed mullet men is my band name, by the way. Oh, I mean, look, we could have that be the official Baywatch Rookie School uh, band right there. They're yes, uh, rat-tailed mullet men, uh, which also I think should just be a term to describe some sort of like fictional faction of people that we don't like that doesn't actually exist, um, mm-hmm. except for Jimmy. Um, now, so they go to the you go to the gallery event, and all of these pictures are of food, but not like classic you know paint food like the apple the banana the bowl of grapes <laughs> no instead it's like uh some dude got some like mcdonald's fries and it kind of fell into his 20 piece chicken nugget and like in the trunk of his car and it's like him drawing a picture of how like life never fades just like how because of all the butane in a chicken nugget in mcdonald's it just stays there for 20 years and it's like oh oh very good very good sir and Mm -hmm. then like you go to the next picture and the next picture is like a wing you got from wing zone and it's seven alarm and there's like a person eating it and smoke is coming out of their ears uh and then like it's signed ben garrison on the bottom or something like that like Mm -hmm. i think that would be this this art gallery and then of course you know all these things would be 6900 thousand dollars um Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it'd just be a great show. It's it's all for charity. Um, it's it's mostly for, uh, you know, my friend who is a police uh, who's who uh, he hurt his finger uh, trying to beat up innocent. Uh, mm. Sorry, did I say innocent? I meant guilty people of color. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's what the charity is for is for his finger. You see, he needs surgery. And by surgery, I mean, he just really needs like some cold spray. But like they're out of cold spray at the store. So I thought I'd do this charity event. Mm hmm. Yeah, the the final piece of the auction is going to be an IROC Z Camaro uh, with 
discarded McDonald's takeout boxes in the passenger seat. Just a, a painting of that. But they're all signed by Colonel Sanders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just because. In the crossover event of the century. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, nothing says finger looking good, like putting your fingers inside a McDonald's barbecue sauce pack and realizing it's still fresh. <laughs> yeah, that is almost as uh, upsetting as this scene. Now, yeah, I should sure add that is. this whole scene here uh, was to me very creepy. I am the kind of person I I'm not great with horror. Uh, I get scared at almost everything. And this is kind of a creepy scene and it reminds me a lot of this trope that i hate it's used in this in this scene in a way i actually really love but this trope i hate uh, i frequently point to neil gaiman's book anasi boys uh as a book that i hated uh that does this which is the clearly bad person infiltrating the society of the good person and trying to act all goody two-shoes just to ruin someone's life. I hate it because it makes me feel, like, really disturbed in a way that I find uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, an Anasi Boys spoiler uh, for anybody who uh, hasn't read it and doesn't want to be spoiled on it. A character assumes the life of the main character, steals pretty much everything he'd ever loved, including his partner, and so he is stuck like in some sort of cast off state trying to regain his life and take it back from this other person. I hate that trope. It just, it annoys the fuck out of me. In this case, it's not the exact same thing, but it is Jimmy being like, Oh yes, I'm Eddie's friend. And Oh, Gina, you have great art here. Isn't that right, Eddie? Uh, and it's done well because we established Jimmy as cartoonish at the beginning. And then, as I mentioned earlier, this scene like evolves him into conniving and it's done in a really good way. Cause it's, he comes into the scene and you're like, Oh, look at this cartoonish villain, like trying to, you know, buddy, buddy with Gina. And then you can see just how manipulative he is. And it turns into actual good villain stuff. So I was pretty shocked. I enjoyed this scene a lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was really surprised with how, well jimmy is portrayed here like my next note just says okay jimmy is actually threatening and then in parentheses mob question mark because it felt like he might have like mob connections Ooh, yeah the rat tailed uh arts i already forgot what it's called the rmm mob <laughs> the rat tail what what do we call it the ra- uh the rat tail mullet mob the the rat tailed mullet men mob or the rat tailed yes. mullet mob which either one the rat tail mullet mob would totally be like the name of like my Twitch collective or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but this scene already identifies that they've learned to write a villain who is manipulative better than they did in the pilot because already a few minutes in better than Lori. Oh, so much better. Like mm-hmm. not even on the same playing field. Yeah. So, and then, uh, you know, the scene plays out, uh, I don't know if you have anything written specifically about the scene nope. in terms of lines. Uh, do you? No, I do not. So Eddie, so they, they Eddie eventually gets them, you know, out of there. Says we got we got some big thing we got to go do. Takes them into the elevator because take an elevator up to their apartment, and 
Eddie pushes Jimmy into the wall and threatens him to stay away from him. And Jimmy says that it's payback time. Kind of implies that he's going to ruin his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the end of the interaction between the two of them for the moment. Next, we go to Trevor's girlfriend, it seems like. We've never actually met her before. And later we'll n- learn her name is Lisa. She's played by Mariska Hargitay. Yep, but her and Trevor have a whole conversation where she keeps just being real skeezy about her dad, who she keeps referring to as daddy, and it just, it feels bad. I didn't like watching it. It made me uncomfortable. Well, especially um, because at one point she references her dad, sees her dad, makes out with Trevor to, like, you know, like, annoy her dad. And I'm like, oh, Trevor, I don't like you, but you don't deserve that. Yeah. Especially because it turns out that her dad is, I think, Trevor's boss. It's never actually yes. explicitly stated one way or the other, I think. I, I'm, it's like 99% implied. Yeah. But yeah, the scene basically ends with Lisa inviting Trevor to a cocktail party on her daddy's boat. And, oh, God, I hate the number of times that the word daddy is uttered during this episode. It Tell me more, daddy. Me Why do you hate it? Hmm? Tell me more, daddy. Why do you hate it? Oh, God. It just, is that your thing? You don't like the word daddy? I mean, it's okay in, in certain contexts, but when it's actually... It's okay when I call you daddy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Do it yes. all day. Yes. Yes. For me. yes. But when it's... When it's actually a girl flirting with her boyfriend and then calling her dad daddy, it just feels weird. And maybe this is just my own having spent too much time on the internet, but it feels bad. Don't like it. Wish okay. to stop. What if instead we take the same scene, but every time she says daddy, we instead replace it with pop pop. but what would pop-up say i would like that much better i think pop-up is the best way or is the best usage i don't even know what i'm trying to say it's the best alternative to daddy yeah definitely yeah at least when you're talking about your actual father your actual pop-up yes yes also i think that's like i i probably unintentionally stole that from like tim and eric or something probably I yeah. think it might be an Arrested Development bit. Oh, possibly. We stole it from something, unintentionally. Yeah, we stole it from something funnier than the two of us. So, like, whatever. Mm, debatable. <laughs> I mean, we're at least funnier than Jeffrey Tambor. That's true. Or at least less abusive. Uh, at least less transphobic. That, too. Yes. Yeah. Moving on. Next up, we've got Eddie and Shawnee at their tower, and Shawnee's real mad that Eddie isn't talking to her and telling her what's going on. And when she tells Eddie this, he responds, I gotta go on patrol now. Yeah, he's got trauma. Yeah. But luckily, Deus Ex Machina, it turns out that that was actually the perfect time to go on patrol because someone starts drowning. Yeah. Eddie runs towards the water, but gets tripped by Jimmy, who steals his rescue gear in which, what is... Which is called a can. Yeah. They call I, it a lot of different things. Trevor also calls it a can later in the episode, and I've been trying to figure out what we call these things. I guess we're going to call them cans from now on. 
I guess so. I feel like in this episode alone, we also hear them called floaties and buoys. So I truly have no idea. Oh yeah, no, he also they also called they're also called floaties. So I mean, we could just call them power skis. <laughs> These are red power skis. These are red power. Well, they're more <laughs> orange power skis, which is like the rare flavor, you know. Yeah, yeah, the rarest of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, what happens is someone else saves the drowning person. Mm-hmm. Shawnee, I believe. Yes. But yeah, this is a little bit weird because we revert back to Jimmy being a cartoon villain where he literally trips Eddie and then steals his floaty thing and like is throwing it to his friends who are in a circle around Eddie playing keep away. Like that is some real just like cartoon villain bully. Schoolyard bully. Mm hmm. But yeah. Eddie gets mad at Jimmy, understandably, and Mm -hmm. starts beating the shit out of him until Craig shows up and pulls Eddie off. Um, And then Jimmy acts like he's never met Eddie before and goes, I want to file a complaint. Yeah, this is the part where in one scene he goes from cartoonish back to, fuck you, you manipulative piece of shit. Yeah, It honestly kind of excuses the cartooniness because it feels like he's doing that just as an act. Like, he knows that it'll win him, you know, uh, sympathy points with on-looking bystanders. It totally is. I mean, it's incredibly conniving, and it just makes his character, I think, better. Like, this isn't isn't Shakespeare, but this is pretty darn good. I, I like it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would like to explain some of the next scene. Go uh, ahead. Which is we cut to Pop-Pop's boat party. Uh, <laughs> and they they pan through and you hear this voice and you're like, that, sound, that sounds like Trevor. And there's like a punchline to a joke and everyone seems very entranced. And Trevor says, and I want to change my name to Crocodile Rabinowitz. <laughs> Mate, your name ain't even Kenny the Koala. Uh, do you like my Australian accent? It's very good. I had I had that exact same exchange written down because I also could not make heads or tails of the initial part of his joke, but it does very clearly focus on his audio long enough for him to say he wanted to change his name to Crocodile Rabinowitz. And everyone thinks this is the funniest thing they've ever heard. Uh, and then... Lisa goes, oh, Trevor, you should tell him a story about New Guinea. Uh, I think I think he says New Guinea. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, then he's like, oh, I can't I can't tell all my good stories. And I'm like, but that was one of your good stories. <laughs> like who the. OK, so one who, who the fuck. I, I, OK, so this this episode was written again by Jill Donner. Jill Donner, what is going through your head that you come up with anything ever that has the words Crocodile Rabinowitz in it. I, <laughs> I'm baffled. I need to know the rest of this joke that doesn't exist. And I know it doesn't exist because I had subtitles. And even the subtitlers could not figure out what this was. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It must have been the greatest joke ever. But uh, so, you know, people stop laughing. And then Pop-Pop comes up and... They never say his name, so I'm just going to call him Pop-Up. He grabs 
uh, Trevor's champagne and pours it out. And he tells him that he expects his lifeguards to stay sober in case, you know, they have work to do. And Trevor says that he was an invited guest. Like, I don't know why you're doing this. Uh, and says he wants to show Lisa just what it's like to date a lifeguard. You know, one of those classic professions that everybody has a negative opinion about when they date them. Lifeguards. Um, yeah, I don't understand. For a show that is literally about lifeguards, there's a surprising amount of lifeguard discrimination between Garner Ellerby and Pop Pop, both of whom just, like, irrationally hate lifeguards. And I know we said in the first episode that we think lifeguards maybe are a little overhyped and, you know, maybe they aren't quite the heroes that they portray themselves to be. But, like, we don't hate them. Like, we're, right. we're pro-lifeguard, not, not you know, going to just randomly be a dick to them all the time. Yeah, I mean, we are all for lives being saved here. Yeah. So, like... I can't imagine that anybody in the show is just like, nah, let the fuckers die. I, I, that just seems a little bit extreme. Um, but I'm also like waiting for the lifeguard version of like the protocols of the elders of Zion or something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like some sort of really deep propaganda, uh, about like fake propaganda, of course, mm-hmm. uh, just like the protocols of the elders of Zion. Um, about lifeguards or talks about like the ways in which the lifeguards are key into Dante's like realms of hell or something. And like one day, one lifeguard who is also the antichrist will summon like from the deeps, like some sort of demon or maybe like, I don't know. Um, like Mitch is going to be there to like summon the world serpent who will, uh, (laughs) you know, have to fight Thor who is, just a Hemsworth who could probably be on Baywatch. Uh, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't get why there's all this hate for it. And especially because like all Trevor has really done is proven that he is an elitist, which Mm -hmm. pop pop is. He's saved people. Nobody's drowned on his, uh, on his watch. Yeah. Like he's upset that like Trevor is snogging his daughter, but like, Anybody could be snogging your daughter, not just a lifeguard. Yeah. Is it because his like job doesn't pay much? Like maybe that's it. But like, let's be real here. Trevor's pretty hot. So like, I get it. Uh, I don't, I just, there's not really any evidence here to explain why he hates him so much. Yeah. It really doesn't make any sense. And especially it doesn't make sense after this next scene which is that Lisa decides that she's going to show Pop-Pop why she should be dating a lifeguard by yes. jumping off the side of the boat. Yeah, she's crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Trevor dives in to save her, but her boots are too heavy, so she's going to drown? I didn't understand this part. But Trevor keeps yelling, take off your boots. They'll make you drown. What? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I just assumed it was like she has on too much clothing and he wants her to get rid of like excess weight. I, I don't know. But like. Yeah. But why the, the focus boots? on the boots? Uh, I have no I have no answer for this. The only thing I can come up with is that Trevor is actually ahead of his time and is actually the founder of WikiFeet. 
Ah, ooh, ooh. And he's trying to trying to get some early content. <laughs> <laughs> No, anyway, no, I, hate, no. I hate myself for having introduced that, so we're going to move on to the next scene. We do not that. promote, this podcast does not promote the Mariska Hargitay wiki <laughs> page. We absolutely do not promote that. <laughs> Give it zero stars on wiki feet. Give this podcast two stars on wiki feet. <laughs> two out of five. Yeah. Uh, it's, so, I mean, that's more feet than we've had in this audio medium. Anyway, I refuse to talk about this subject anymore. I don't even get Eddie that Eddie is joke, in Mitch's okay. office with Captain Thorpe, where they talk about how Eddie has been beating up Jimmy. And <laughs> yep. Eddie won't tell Mitch and Captain Thorpe what's going on. So Mitch decides to suspend Eddie for 30 days. And then Eddie kind of like pouts away, but also is a little bit determined and feels like, oh, I made the right decision because I won't tell them what's going on. And then Captain Thorpe says, we don't have room for loners. We don't have room for hotheads in his best 30s radio announcer voice, which I did a poor impression of, but Captain Thorpe does a much better version oh, yeah. of. And then Captain Thorpe tells Mitch that the recharge re-up recert whatever it's called test will be in the weight room so mitch looks panicked because he realizes that all his running has been for naught oh i should we should add here that in a, what they want us to think is a key scene but is actually not uh captain thorpe says that he would have fired eddie and then mitch says now you should think about that think about the thing that he said which is also great. He could have just said, now think about that. But I said, think about that. Think about the thing he said, um, which is that you could have gotten fired. But I'm so nice. I suspended you for 30 days. And Thorpe kind of uh, patronizes Mitch for doing that. And Mitch says, like, I believe he can improve. I believe he can get better. That's why I'm suspending him. Mm-hmm. Which a- adds to just Mitch being the all-around best guy. Yeah, totally. No, they're definitely setting up that dichotomy of, like... Mitch being good cop and Captain Thorpe being bad cop. Right. Uh, let's see. There's a real quick scene where Eddie's taking a shower and Shawnee comes in and adjusts the water and yells at him that Eddie still won't tell her what's going on, but then the scene ends and it kind of doesn't matter. Yes. And now we get to a great scene. Now we get to the Rocky montage. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I have the lyrics. Do you want to yes. hear them? I I do. Let me describe the scene a little bit, and then we'll cut to the lyrics. This is Eddie flashing back and forth between him laying in bed and him interacting with Jimmy. Most of the flashback scenes are actually from approximately 30 seconds earlier in the episode. So it's a little bit like, really, you couldn't come up with something else. But, you know, whatever. Well, um, there's the good stuff of him like half naked rolling around in his in his bed covers, which kind of right. But those are great. the present. Those are the present scenes. Like it's the flashback scenes that are. Oh yeah. Literally thirty seconds ago, but yeah, my note says cut to a montage of shots from the episode, most of them from thirty seconds ago, where Eddie is doing a Rocky training montage to cheesy rock, and this song sounds like a parody of itself. It does. Now, um, let's hear those lyrics. <laughs> me, 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 me. Okay. <laughs> you are gonna push me right over the edge. 
like an animal in a cage. Luck me down and tie me up. I will break free from these chains. You know I'm plotting my sweet revenge. Gonna bite the hand that feeds. I gotta trace it back and face the past before the future is mine to see. Seeing red every time I close my eyes, feel the rage when it's building up inside. I will soldier on, never walk away. I will right this wrong, battle through the pain, through the pain. <laughs> Haunted by the tortured past, I could never escape. It's actually I never could escape, but whatever. I will soldier on, never walk away, walk away. Oh, <laughs> seeing red. Oh, feel the rage. Oh, the rage. I will soldier on, never walk away. I will right this wrong and battle through the pain, through the pain, haunted by the tortured past. I never could escape. I will soldier on, never walk away, walk away. Thank you. Thank you. It was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the subtitles I had so I could just copy and paste that. Because at first I was like trying to type it. And then I was like, this is taking way too long. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll like copy and paste it. And then I'm like, oh my God, there's so much formatting I have to do. And then I was like, oh yeah, I have a mouse and keyboard. So I just like got rid of a bunch of stuff. And I was like, period, period, period. And yeah, okay, yeah. Um, this song is... Oh, it's so way good. too into itself it's so good it's so bad but it's so good it is picture picture a parody of 80s hair metal and this is like three steps cheesier than that oh every i i cannot wait for this reoccurring segment because i just cannot imagine how much better these songs are going to get because they're just going to get worse oh yeah yeah i'm excited for future cheesy 80s music and 90s music as we get more into it oh i'm i'm so hopeful we're gonna get like knock off mariah carey Ooh. or like oh i can't wait for like the the knockoff like bare naked ladies we yes. really should just play that song from reply all uh where it's yeah. like the, that that lost that lost one hit wonder that's not a one hit wonder that mm. would be perfect for this show i'm excited for them to dive into the realm of knockoff hip-hop and rap because oh, I think no. that is going to be particularly bad. That's just going to be, it's going to be that one song from, that one rap song from Creating Rem Lazar, uh, <laughs> where they're just like, out of sight. <laughs> and then there's like some doo-wop guy, and then like the most Swedish man you've ever seen <laughs> plays a violin, and then they talk about <laughs> the Twin Towers. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I really just want this show to be creating Ren Lazar, which is the greatest movie ever made. Please, everybody, go on YouTube and look up Creating Rem Lazar. It's a 45-minute PSA about friendship. It's a musical about friendship uh, starring a man who is uh, Rem Lazar, and he has a long, curly, blue 
it has to be a wig and he sings about the power of friendship and then how they have to find the quixotic medallion to make sure that he gets to stay in this mortal realm uh, and then they like fight off volcar uh who is also just like <laughs> the evil person in their mind and they have to find the highest place imagination can think of or the heart can imagine um and so they think well, why not the Twin Towers? So they go to Central Park, uh, and they're there standing in front of the Central Park, and the only thing you can think of is 9-11 is a, is a Remlazar job, and they end up not fighting the Quixotic Medallion, but they do turn the villain into their friend in literally three seconds, and then he tells them, mm-hmm. friends, I cannot help you. Goodbye. <laughs> and then it turns out Remlazar was, like, always there with them. Uh, it is... If you ever want to know what I am like, just like what I am about, <laughs> like everything that I love, which is corny 80s shit, fancy colors, shitty musicals, catchy music, PSAs about friendships, uh, b- random violins, like this is my ultimate movie, kind of. Not really. It's probably Blade Runner, but creating Rem Lazar. Please watch this movie for me so that we can talk about it. Now back to the episode. <laughs> I will second that very strongly. Creating Grand Bazaar is amazing. You should definitely watch it. And if we ever do a Patreon, our very first bonus episode will be us watching Rem Lazar and reviewing it. And it will oh my be great. G- well, uh, now I'm like, look, Morgan, I, I know we're early on in the podcast here, but like we have to work towards this. Because, oh, yeah. one, we need to watch Creating Realm Lazar. Two, uh, and maybe this is a bit of a future spoiler, which is we need to start do our podcast about the show, The Slap. Yes. Oh, the yes. eight episode, was yes. it, show, The Slap, a show mm-hmm. about different perspectives of people after they witness a man slap a child at a dinner party. What if, what if Rashomon, but <laughs> overacted and about a guy slapping a kid? <laughs> That's the best description. <laughs> I wasn't expecting Rashomon to be like referenced in regarding the slap, but you know, sometimes the parallels are just there under our nose, and it yeah. takes someone else to help us realize. I mean, you haven't seen the slap, right? I have not. I've only seen right, the and I haven't. Apparently, the Australian version is good, so maybe the American version will be good. Could be. But anyway, you know, what's not good is the metaphor that Jimmy uses in this next scene. Oh, tell me more. Eddie goes to a bar that Jimmy earlier was like, you should come to this bar and we'll talk it out. And blah, 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 blah. I'm the villain of this episode. So Jimmy blames Eddie for Jimmy having spent years in jail. And we're still not clear at this point exactly what happened. But Jimmy says a line that I think is the least helpful metaphor I've ever heard in my life, which is, jail was a real drag. It's kind of like being a rat locked in a steel box with a whole bunch of other rats. Which, like, (laughs) what? (laughs) There's not really a metaphor there. Like, the only metaphor is that, like, instead of people, it's rats. Like, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if he thought through that one very well. Yeah, not so much. It uh, It's a real departure from the good writing that happened earlier in this episode. I feel like 
our our our, our friend Jill the writer kind of like had three lines she needed to get out like really quick and that's what she came up with and then was like uh, fuck it just just put it to tape mm-hmm. but yeah we we find out in this scene that basically whatever happened jimmy somehow took the heat for it and eddie never went to jail and now jimmy's mad at him so the two of them fight in what looks like the alley behind modine's and letter kenny uh yes Oh my god, you're right. Right? It looks exactly the fucking same. But they Well, Modine's one, two, or three. Uh all of them, I think it's the same set. So <laughs> no, I think it looks most like Modine's one. Modine's three has a few bit more like in the day shots. That's uh, true. So it's Modine's one. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they they fight for a little bit until it looks like Eddie's coming out on top, and then the music swells dramatically and gets very cheesy while Jimmy pulls out a switchblade and then Eddie somehow ends up in a headlock from the bar's owner and the bar's owner lets Jimmy get away and is like, Eddie, you're coming with me inside the bar. And then Eddie and Craig are back at Craig and Gina's apartment with Gina as well. And basically, like, Craig and Gina are trying to assess how injured... Eddie is, and it's clear that, like, Craig paid Eddie's bail or whatever, and then we very dramatically cut to Mitch emerging from around a corner to scold Eddie, which I thought was very funny. Yeah, I also thought it was hilarious. Just the way Mitch kind of comes out, Eddie sort of thinks he can get away, and Mitch is like, I'm not done talking here. Uh, And clearly... This is the part where Eddie is finally going to fess up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all three of Craig, Gina, and Mitch all recount their various stories of how they've heard the name Jimmy Roche in connection with Eddie. And then Eddie finally confesses that him and Jimmy grew up in Philadelphia as kids, and then they went into a liquor store when they were both 16, and... Jimmy pulled a gun out of nowhere and Eddie didn't even realize he had a gun. So Eddie tried to stop Jimmy. And then next thing we know, Jimmy and Eddie got arrested and Eddie ended up in a foster home and and Jimmy ended up in juvie for three years. And it's a little bit weird that they seem to imply that this is why Eddie was in a foster home. Yeah. I don't know if they were foster kids beforehand, but they do. Eddie does say that after he got out of county jail, he was put into an institutional foster home. Yeah, it it felt a little weird. Like, I couldn't tell if he was saying, like, I was already in a foster home and now I'm in a, like, bad kid foster home. Or if he was saying... That's what I, I feel like, because in the, in the pilot, he mentions having... Uh, he, his name should be Jimmy Foster because he was in so many foster homes and he had like so many parents. Right. So I thought he was already in foster homes as a kid and then he was put into an institutional foster home later. Yeah, that makes more sense. The way I read that scene originally, because I had forgotten about that part, was that at 16, the judge was like, well, you did one bad thing, so now we're going to take you away from your parents and put you in a foster home. Which seemed pretty wild. But yeah, I agree that makes more sense if it's like, oh, we're going from normal foster home 
to institutional foster home. So Mitch decides, well, you've been honest with me. You've opened up to me. You've gotten past your trauma, which is always a very good part of emotional learning and development. Here, here. We're all about that at this podcast. Absolutely. And Mitch reinstates Eddie, which is great. And then they decide to add another person to this already emotional orgy uh, in the <laughs> likes of Officer Garner Ellerby, who I kind of actually love uh, for some reason. And uh, Gina decides to respond to this by being like, well, now I guess now it is a party. I'll go put on the coffee. Which is her first line in many minutes because they have decided to completely ignore her. Well, she's also not his boss. That's fair, but Craig gets a lot of lines despite not being Eddie's boss. Well, he's his senior. I'm not saying that they it's not shitty to women. I'm just saying that it also makes a little bit more sense why the main focus would be the guys who work with him. Sure, uh, but you've spent a lot of time in this series establishing that Gina has sympathy for Eddie like giving him the closet and whatever over Craig's objections. Like a lot of time we've had like 10 minutes. Well, I mean, in comparison to how much time we've spent setting up literally anything else in this show, but it feels like you could have given her at least one more line at some point during this show or this scene. But yeah, it's, it's great when officer Gardner Ellaby shows up it really completes the after school special vibe of this entire scene agreed um and ellerby basically states that he did some background research on jimmy and there are 11 counts of armed robbery 11 counts of armed robbery that's how you say that word and one account of attempted murder by shooting a gas station attendant in the stomach. Yeah. Um, so Jimmy ain't a great guy. No, not so much. Turns out uh, the guy who robbed a liquor store when he was 16 maybe continued down that life of crime because this is the 80s and we don't understand how nature versus nurture works. And we've decided that once a criminal, always a criminal. Morgan, stop with your like, like hippie shit. I, I know, like right? I know. Yeah, Look, basic basic you, empathy if you is want, overrated. If you want to be in the rat tail, I already forgot what the first M is again. Mullet? Rat tail mullet mob. Mm -hmm. You got to you gotta be done with that hippie shit. To be fair, the juggalos, which are probably the prime example of mullets these days, are surprisingly empathetic. Do they have mullets? I don't feel like they actually have mullets. I mean, I feel like if any group out there is going to have mullets these days, it's going to be juggalos. Let me tell you about the time instead I went to a Slayer concert. Yes, um, please. Okay, have you ever heard this story? No, I have not. So I have this friend who may listen to this podcast at some point, Sam. And I hadn't seen Sam in a few years. And Sam was like, hey, do you want to hang out for the first time in a few years by going to go see Slayer? And I was like, uh... Okay. And he's like, oh, I should also tell you it's a double header. It's Slayer and Rob Zombie. Oh, hell And I was yes. like, oh, okay. Uh, and he's like, it's like a five-hour concert. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I've, I've, never, I've never been to a metal show. And he's like, it's okay. Like, don't worry. It's just like the most metal band of all time, Slayer. Uh, like, you'll be fine. I'm like, 
oh, okay. So I go to this show, and someone someone else gave me a Children of the Dome shirt. And uh, uh, so I go there, and I was so out of my element at first. I was, like, seeing some dudes who were clearly juggalos, but a bunch of dudes in rat tails um, really rocking out to Exodus, who was the opening band. I'm going to tell this whole story. Like, fuck it, I don't care. <laughs> um, and so it starts off, do you know what the Wall of Death is? Not a clue. So the wall of death is, first what happens is the singer shouts, wall of death. And everybody moves to the opposite side of the floor. And when he shouts, go, you run as fast as you can and in any way possible get to the other side. By which I mean punching, kicking, hitting, whatever. So it's Metal Red Rover. Yes. Um, And so singer shouts, wall of death. And this one woman poor woman does not know what is going on oh no when she heard death she didn't immediately run and so she's there in the middle they shout wall of death and some dude just runs and clocks her like right in the face uh and she's you can see her like sort of starting to crawl and like someone else knees her uh luckily only like grazes her so she's able to like get her way to the back uh this is at wamu theater so she's by the sound she gets to the soundboard Mm -hmm. and then there's someone like takes care of her but they're like running at each other well death is crazy right so then rob zombie comes on rob zombie cannot sing for the fucking life of him he is the most breathy person i have ever seen in my entire life he just goes <gasps> that's what he sounds that's what he sounds like um and he is all about the theatrics it's fucking great um and one dude was really into it who decided to use my hair as rolling paper for a blunt um, <laughs> Because like I had I have curls, so he took the curls and tried to wrap it up, and I felt something in my head, and I was just like, I'm probably just imagining things. Okay, so and I I felt on. like real real quick. I know of the two of us, I'm probably the bigger stoner than you are. Um, curls do not help you roll a blunt, so I don't know what the fuck this dude was on. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and. So he, I, I felt something in my hair and then he started like taking my hair and started like, like sort of like trying to roll it. I don't know what he was doing. And I looked around, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, ah, oh, shit. Sorry, man. <laughs> he like walks away <laughs> and I was like, okay, whatever. Like, this is a great show. I don't care. And I looked next to me and there's this dude who is doing what I like to call the horse stance. It's not the horse stance. It's the, cause the horse stance is you, you, you face forward and it's to the side. He's doing like the squat or like the, uh, not the squat, um, the, a lunge forward. And he's like, you know, head banging. And then he looks to his girlfriend or his wife and then just like goes, I love you, baby. And then like starts pounding his <laughs> fist again for like a few beats and turns back to his girl. And it's like, I love you so much. You're my favorite. <laughs> baby, you're the best. <laughs> baby, Maybe I want to be with you forever. And I, I was like, I think I'm losing my mind. Like this is the craziest <laughs> place I've ever been in my life. Right. And I'll, I can see in the distance, there's the mosh pit and I could see people jumping and that's fucking crazy. And then all of a sudden Rob zombie pulls out this giant animatronic version of Rob zombie that like, what? I, I, I like there's this thing, but he has theatrics on stage. I don't know what's going on at all. And I'm like, these songs are catchy, but like, what the, where the fuck am I? Um, so he does this full set, like 15 songs. They take a break. And I, I turn to my friend Sam and I'm like, 
dude, like that was crazy. Like I can't even like imagine. That. And he goes, "Oh, dude, don't worry. Slayer's coming on next. It's gonna be great." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, that's right, Slayer." Uh, and I'd listened to like one or two Slayer songs at the time. Like I'm a much bigger Slayer fan now. Like I love South of Heaven. I love Rain and Blood. Like I I love Slayer, but I didn't know them at the time. So the mosh grows maybe like four times larger when Slayer comes on. Uh, and all of a sudden it just gets fucking hard. And all of the weirdness just like vanished. And it's now just a bunch of dudes like hurting their necks, of course. Right. But what happens at one point is some dude like tries to leave the mosh pit and I'm in front of him. I'm just watching his eyes as he watches me and he, as he leaves the mosh pit and I'm like in his way, sort of not really that much in his way. And he just punches me in the face Oh shit. and it's like, <laughs> and goes move. And I was like, I think I just had the most metal experience. I got punched by a guy leaving a mosh pit. Like that's amazing. <laughs> and there was still another hour and a half left of that set. My back was killing me. I was like, at the time I thought, wow, I've heard the same song 20 times. Really, they're very different songs. I apologize. Um, but I, my mind was blown. I could not hear for four days. Uh, and luckily, I worked like a manual labor job at the time. I was a plumber. So I was like, I, didn't, I don't really need to like use my ears. What am I doing? Like putting my ears to the pipes and going, oh, there's water there. <laughs> <laughs> there she blows. Uh, uh, but yeah, that was one of the craziest concert experiences I've ever been to. And I'm glad I didn't go into the mosh because I have glasses. Uh, so they probably would have gotten lost. Um, also I would have been murdered. Uh, so I'm glad I got to experience it in most, mostly safe environments, but I encourage anybody like you can't go to a Slayer show anymore because they, cause they're, they retired, but like go to a, go to a metal show and just, sit back and watch it's so it's so good yeah absolutely but you know what's not a safe environment oh yeah drowning in your sleep yes uh next scene up <laughs> great great transition morgan thank you thank you i'm i'm trying to keep the segue momentum going but oh yeah you know you do what you can the next scene is trevor and lisa in a dark room and Lisa's asphyxiating in her sleep. And then magically Lisa is in the ER and Trevor, despite apparently being an accomplished lifeguard, doesn't understand what the hell is going on. And then that's the end of the scene. Like it yeah. kind of cuts and it's really weird, but honestly it does a much better job of building suspense than other scenes of this type that we've had before. Agreed. It actually makes you feel for Trevor and his shock. Yeah, I'll say, honestly, Trevor in this episode, one of my notes later is, oh, I actually kind of feel bad for Trevor. Like, Agreed. One of the things you mentioned to me before we recorded this is that this episode actually has some pretty legitimate character development. And I think right about now is where we start to see that, especially for Trevor, where like, oh, he's actually a pretty three-dimensional character which is surprising given how two-dimensional and shitty they've made him in the rest of this series 
Agreed. I hope this leads to some great stuff next episode. Yeah, I agree. I actually kind of invested in Trevor's plotline now, despite thinking that he seems like every Long Island douchebag I grew up with. Um, Even though he's Australian. Exactly. But it's, I mean, it's a little of column A, a little of column B. You know what else I'm invested in, Morgan? Yes. Jimmy calling Eddie. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the next scene is Jimmy calls Eddie while Eddie's half asleep and basically says, hey, Eddie, either you loan me a couple hundred bucks so I can get out of here or I'm going to rob Craig and Gina. And so Eddie says, all right, fine. Let me meet you at my bank machine, (laughs) which is, you know, what everyone calls an ATM. I guess. Oh yeah, I yeah. usually call it the, uh, you know, the money lender, uh, mm-hmm. the double or the, the money tree or the caterpillar. Uh, sometimes I call it the the money face, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes I call it that plot device in the book of Henry that Henry uses <laughs> to make himself seem smart and intelligent and able to predict the future. Mm-hmm. I I usually call it the usurious golem myself, but you know. Ooh, the, what about the Rashomon of money? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, because, like, there's a disconnect between when you deposit the money and when you later withdraw it. So really, really, it is the Rashomon of money. You make a very good point. I fucking hate us. <laughs> you and me both. You and I me know, both. right? Anyways... Let's cut back to the hospital. Yeah, next up, we're back in the hospital. And it turns out Lisa is stable, and the ER doctor lectures Trevor on how, and I quote, This is why county lifeguards always bring in victims, no matter how well they feel. Because apparently ER doctors are up on where individual lifeguards are employed? It doesn't make sense to me. I didn't feel... Well, I didn't know if it was like that, but she was just like, yeah, county... county this is why I, I didn't feel it as much as like calling him out as much as it was. Did you not know second drowning, secondary drowning was a thing, um, which it is a real thing. Um, and of course, Trevor didn't know because all of his experience went into I can swim well. Yeah, exactly. To be fair, he can also power ski well. Uh, but I mean... Yes. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but yes. Yeah. Next up, we've got uh, Gardner Ellerby and Eddie who meet in a park to talk about how Eddie's a police informant now. Mm-hmm. And again, this scene just kind of like foreshadows the rest of the episode, which is weird because there's only like eight minutes left in the episode, something like that. No, there's more than that. Maybe like 10. It's it's not much. We're near the end by this point. But I have so many more notes, though. Oh, I know. The last like 10 minutes of the episode are super quick. Like they really figured out pace they're good in minutes. this episode. I think they're good minutes, but. Oh, I agree. No, like we said it at the beginning of the episode, but I want to restate. This episode is good. Like yes. genuinely good. Both the A and B plots are genuinely solid. There's some surprisingly good acting and writing and some really good character development. Like, if if this is what the good episodes of Baywatch look like, I understand why it was so popular. No, it's not. 
<laughs> but anyways, uh, so Trevor then comes to Lisa's room and apologizes to her. Mm-hmm. Trevor admits he doesn't know everything because, you know, he's not a county lifeguard. He's just a guy who swims. And Lisa says in, you know, not as few words as this, that she's leaving L.A. to spread her wings, become a model. And Trevor then kind of makes it about himself. And he basically says that she used him to make him be some ploy to make her, you know, to extend her relationship with her dad. Um, And Lisa calls him out on it because, okay, she almost died. Like, I mean, it was her fault. She jumped off of a boat. But still, she almost died, and she's there in a in a in a like a recovery room. Trevor came to visit her, and the first thing Trevor really does is say, "How dare you like leave? How dare you want to like do your own thing?" Like, and he's kind of a dick. And I think it's it, Trevor, you know, not realizing how how to react to it, and you know, he's not a great person, but he's slowly learning to become better. And I thought. It was actually, again, a a really well-done scene because it establishes that Trevor isn't just all of a sudden this great guy. He's still a fucking dickbag. Yeah, I I agree. I think even a little bit deeper, what it does that I thought was particularly good writing is that we can still empathize with Trevor a bit. Like, yes, he is interpreting this scene or this exchange to his own benefit to some extent, but also he's not a hundred percent wrong. Like, no, there's not, there's definitely something to be said for the fact that Lisa does seem to have deliberately used Trevor to piss off her dad. And Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I am not necessarily opposed to a short term relationship. Like that's totally fine. Like, you know, if you want to just date someone long enough because they're really hot and built all the time and you want to, like, go have some really good sex, like, go ahead. Be my guest. I don't give a fuck. Um, but it does feel a little bit emotionally manipulative to me the way that she's like, oh, hey, now that my dad is mad at you, I'm going to use that as an excuse for why I should leave and get as far away from you as possible. Like, I, but I do agree with you that I think overall it is much more Trevor reading into the scene more than he should. But I do think there's not no validity to right. his. Right. No, there's plans. not no validity. This is in our reoccurring segment of talking about how relationships work. Um, <laughs> this, sh- this should be a point where Trevor should have just discussed with her hey this was my expectation of the relationship totally uh what was your expectation but this is also 1989 and noam was able to work through relationships um mm-hmm. you know they just uh, you know if if they just stayed together or they died and <laughs> um but really like her expectation was short term and his expectation was oh yeah like this is going to be a long term thing and that, that's kind of their fault for not talking about it totally but i you know we don't we don't see lisa again this is her last scene and she's just a guest actor i don't think she comes back um and mariska mariska hargitay would go on to do much much better things uh by being like 
a main character. I think it's in Law and Order, like the main one of the, like the main characters. Like she's famous now. Like whatever. Like she's done much better than Baywatch. Yeah, totally. So she doesn't need to be in Baywatch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I don't. I don't feel too bad for her as an actor, considering she does a really good job with the average to middling script that she's given. But this this is actually where my note that I foreshadowed earlier appears, which is I almost feel bad for Trevor. Yeah. But next up, we go to the big recheck that Mitch has been foreshadowing this entire episode. And oh, yes. Turns out it's a written exam. And Ooh. Mitch is not prepared for math. And well, I mean that's basically it. Like that's basically the whole team. Is he shows They ask him to calculate mathematically wave vectors and tidal drifts in ten minutes with an equation that takes up an entire blackboard that they are clearly not meant to know mm-hmm. and is most likely not accurate. Mm-hmm. Now, I say most likely not accurate, it's because this is Baywatch. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely just like random math gibberish written on a blackboard. Like, there's no way that's actually the equations for either of those things. They don't even define what what the values are, like, or what what the variables are. Yeah. Like, how is it, how are they supposed to know? One of the um, one of the figures on the blackboard that is most prominent is the definition of what the radius of a circle is, which definitely <laughs> is not relevant to either of those things. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's, uh, it's, uh, a whirlpool. Yeah. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> Look, so you gotta, you gotta know about them whirlpools there on them, uh, you know, L.A. beaches. hmm Yeah, totally. You never know when one's just gonna appear. Wasn't just some writers going like, eh, it's nerd shit. No one who knows anything about math will ever be watching our dumb soap opera. No, just remember that... <laughs> The point of Mitch is that his character is there to summon the world serpent at the end of time. Exactly. In a battle of the gods. Right. And, of course, the world serpent would appear from a whirlpool. And, of course, what the ancient Norse were talking about was the beaches of L.A., the place they were most familiar with when writing the prose Edda. Um, and, of course, Ragnarok was supposed to occur uh, in 1989 uh, (laughs) from a man who looks vaguely like what the inside of a, like a can of Pringles looks like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, as everyone knows, like Ouroboros is the world ending serpent and whirlpools are a circle. And also, L.A. is a circle, especially when it comes to Baywatch, because L.A. has Hollywood, which produced Baywatch, which features L.A. And, I mean, really, that's your classic Ouroboros right there. So, really, when it comes down to it, Mitch should know his whirlpool equations, or else he just shouldn't be a lieutenant. I do want to offer a correction there, which is, (laughs) it's not the Ouroboros. Oh, okay. I don't actually know mythology at all. I just heard serpent and mythology and thought Ouroboros and well, also it that it is, was a circle and thought it would make a good joke. The world serpent is a, in technicality, is a type of Ouroboros. Oh, okay. But the world serpent's name is Jormungandr, right. um, also known as the Midgard serpent. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just didn't want to say Jormungandr a bunch. I just wanted <laughs> to say world serpent. Uh, 
so I will clearly be forgiven for that. So uh, next we see uh, a scene where finally Jimmy approaches and Eddie's there waiting um, and all these cops are around and they're not doing a great job looking inconspicuous. Like Jimmy clearly can see, oh yeah, that's a cop, that's a cop, that's a cop Mm -hmm. and just walks away. Yeah, my main note for this scene is that um, it's almost like cops are bad at their jobs and we should defund them and give their budget to people who are actually good at their jobs and can do good for their community instead of just beating up protesters and tear gassing them. What a whoa, whoa, whoa. shock whoa, whoa, and what a whoa. surprise. Not all cops. Hashtag oh, Officer Garner LRB. Oh, God. Uh, clearly the best. Mm-hmm. I mean... He does ever. We should defund the police department and put all that money in lifeguarding. Yes. I mean, honestly, like, as much shit as we give lifeguards, I would happily pay lifeguards the salaries that cops get. Like, here in Seattle, where they get $200,000 plus a year in salary. I don't know if I'd give that to a lifeguard, considering we don't have as many days of a year as in L.A. where you would actually need a lifeguard. Sure, but I'd, but give, I it, agree. I'd give it to a lifeguard over a cop. who does In principle, I absolutely agree, and I'd rather a lifeguard have it over a cop, um, because uh, a cab. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it also wouldn't make as much sense in Seattle as it would in L.A. That's fair. I mean, you could go to Alki Beach. <laughs> great seattle humor right there oh yeah great seattle humor uh clearly everyone's gonna love that joke Mm -hmm. um anyway anyways next scene trevor sneaks into the lifeguard headquarters the baywatch headquarters um and steals a donut and a lifeguard manual yep and he starts flipping through it and mitch allows him to take the manual since they're all working at the same beach and tells him you know, you can use our, our dumbbells, you can you can use our showers, our water fountains, whatever you want. I want to I wanna specifically talk about this exchange because I think it's very good. What happens yes. is um, Mitch comes in and says, oh, taking donuts, doesn't the, it's something like, doesn't the county or doesn't the club give you better options than that or something? I, that line isn't important. But then Trevor lists all the facilities at the club. Things like a hot tub and a spa and shit like that. And then asks what the county has. And Mitch says, we have charm. <laughs> and then It's kind of cute. Which is good. Like, it's actually pretty good. And then Mitch follows that up with, how many of those facilities are you allowed to use? And Trevor says, absolutely none of them. I'm just the hired help. Which I thought was actually very good. Like, my, my note here is good writing like, it's great writing yeah and then then the next exchange as well like this actually continues for a little bit is the two of them banter for a little bit and then trevor goes to leave and says how much do i owe you for the donut and mitch says 25 bucks but the lifeguard manual is free which like that's actually very funny that's really good writing because trevor earlier in this scene put the lifeguard manual into his duffel bag because he is still reflecting on the fact that his girlfriend almost died because he didn't know about secondary drowning, which all the county lifeguards know about. Like, that's that's actually really good. Another thing to add in this scene is during the middle of the scene, Jill walks down the stairs. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
and Mitch Mitch says hi, and Jill stares and is clearly confused why Trevor's there and says, you look like you're out of your element. And she walks to the showers, and Trevor's, like, watching her, you know, down the hallway through the showers mm-hmm. and being like, maybe I'll come around here more often. And it still shows that he has this, like, thing for Jill. He's still, like, kind of like a creep. But, like, he's he's learning. And, again, establishing that we can empathize with him. But he's still, like, he's not just, like, changed in a moment. He is a work in progress. And, like, that's what television needs more of. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think this exchange right here, honestly, is the best writing we've seen in three episodes in a pilot of this show. Which, hey, there are shows that just don't get it until like episode eight or 12 or whatever. Oh, for sure. Or even ever. Or there's some that's like heroes where they got it for some episodes and just lose it. Um, yeah. God, you know, I so loved, I loved season one of heroes and then fucking season two was so bad. And then season three was even worse. Anyway, this is not a heroes podcast. We're going to keep talking about Baywatch. <laughs> Because um, this is Baywatch Rookie School, a podcast for two men who have never watched Baywatch. Um, the the last little bit of that scene is that Captain Thorpe comes in and says that, hey, good news, Mitch. And Mitch goes, oh, I passed? And Thorpe goes, no, everyone failed the exam, so I'm grading on a curve. Um, which, again, I actually thought was very funny. And was like... It was great, thing. like... There's this woman who wrote this episode should just be writing every episode. Yeah, totally. Um, but now we get to the final, the final scene. Yeah, this was, I mean, we have to apparently in every episode have at least one dramatic tonal shift. And here's where that happens because yep. um, Shawnee goes to close down her shared tower with Eddie and they flirt a little bit. And then Shawnee asks him to dinner and then all of a sudden, despite- wait, wait, wait! Before you say that, mm-hmm. I want to be specific. Shawnee asks Eddie about grabbing dinner, and Eddie says, "Sure," but she has to carry the conversation. Yes, which was like, <laughs> "Damn, that's a good line." Yeah, again, like the writing on this episode was really good. But yeah, we we cut away from that, and then so this tower has like probably what you'd say at least eight windows, maybe more and two or three doors. And then, so the two of them all of a sudden go from all of the windows and doors being open to within a second, all of the doors and windows being shut and nailed closed, which, mm, okay, sure. Considering (laughs) two people, which is Jimmy and one of his friends, Nailing no, it's these three, things shut. It's three people. It's Jimmy, David Spade, and third guy. Oh, that's true. I forgot it was three, but still. Look, you feels, forgot the power of the spade. It feels a little much, in my opinion. But Don't discount David Spade. Yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe the man is a much better athlete than I would have assumed. I'll, I'll tell you this. He's got eight simple rules <laughs> for locking up your tower. <laughs> That is the worst joke I've ever made. Never let me do that again. I can't stop you even if I wanted to, and I don't. That's true. (laughs) That's very true. Anyways, continue. Once once Jimmy and his friends um, nail down the doors and windows, um, Jimmy eats world. And by that, I mean he throws Molotov cocktails at the door. 
No, no, no. You you have to take that joke back. <laughs> oh, no, I'm leaving that in. Fuck. You got a bad joke. I'm allowed a bad joke. No, you you are just the bad joke. <laughs> Ouch. I don't mean that. I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. You're not wrong. Um, okay, cool. And I, I will happily accept that role. Um, but yeah, so we, we cut to Control back at the main base. And Control says that the line is dead at Tower 34, which apparently means that Mitch needs to go running towards that tower because if phone lines get cut, that's an emergency. Anyway, it doesn't totally make sense, but it makes sense for the plot. Um, I mean, it makes sense if you can't communicate with the tower, but at the same time, it's the end of shift. Yeah. So who well, cares? Because they explicitly say, like, okay, contact Tower 33 and Tower 35, and Control says... Well, their lines are off because they're out for the day. And, like, how the fuck do you know that Tower 34 isn't the same? But anyway. Oh, unless they're supposed to say, we're done. Yeah, I suppose. But it just it just felt very contrived to me. Okay. But, yeah, Eddie and Shawnee are inside the tower, and Jimmy keeps throwing Molotovs at the two of them as they try various methods to escape the tower. They're trying, like, He's got fire a lot of Molotovs. Yeah, he has, like four or five of them that he throws during this scene. And then finally, uh, Garner B shows up on an ATV. Garner B? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> That's just what we're going to call him. Officer Garner Ellaby, no longer yeah. Garner B. It's much shorter, so I'm going to use that from yeah. now on. Officer Garner shows up on an ATV, and instead of rescuing the people inside the burning building, chases down Jimmy. Because it's In a almost- circle. It's almost like cops are bad and we should defund them. Um, <laughs> but just as we're starting to worry about Eddie and Shawnee, Mitch shows up. And then during this, Eddie has poured water on Shawnee's jacket and his jacket. And then the two of them jump out a nailed shut plywood window and land in the sand completely unhurt. And Mitch goes up to Shawnee and says, you okay? And Shawnee says, medium rare. I also wrote down this line. I oh fucking, my God, it's I so bad. I died. It was so funny. It was bad, but it felt deliberately bad. Like, yes. It, it, felt, it felt very smartly written in a very like cheesy, self-aware kind of way, and I fucking loved it. I was like, when did uh, Erica Leniak join the Borscht Belt? <laughs> this is just like classic old jewish comedian just like i'm gonna tell you how i felt medium rare all right <laughs> i was like okay erica calm down mm-hmm. um and then the last thing that happens it well the last two things that happen is eddie then tackles jimmy it's about to punch him but holds back and then just throws him to officer ellerby um who's like gonna take him away and then Officer, then uh, then Captain Thorpe comes in and he stands next to Mitch and Craig as they then watch Shawnee and Eddie embrace. And that's our episode. Yeah. I gotta say, this was probably my, not even probably, this was definitely my favorite episode so far. Yeah, I mean, we haven't watched much, but that's, it's not hard to do. But yeah, that was my favorite episode. And I legitimately enjoyed myself watching it. Yeah, same. Uh, 
which I wasn't expecting. Like, there's episodes of television that I'm like, it's okay, and it's good. And then there's ones where I say, I actually enjoyed, or I had a good time watching this. Like, I laughed, and I was like, oh, what happens next? And I was shocked that it was this early of an episode of Baywatch. Yeah, um, absolutely. I was not expecting it to get this good for at least another season. Well, it's not going to again. Well, I mean, again, we've mentioned that the show gets canceled. Um, so I don't like I don't imagine it's going to do this a lot. And I imagine it's going to get to a lot of really ham fisted like cancer storylines. Sure. Um, but like, yeah, like this made me double down on the fact that we are doing this podcast. If not for the fact that. I mean, what else is there to do in quarantine? Exactly. But uh, other than, I don't know, uh, systemic oppression. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, like this made me want to continue watching the show because I thought, wow, like this is the kind of writing this show could be. This is a decent show. I would watch this. Yeah, uh, totally. And I am watching this. Totally. Uh, so like on a scale of one to ten with... One being like muddy sand, like <laughs> extremely just muddy, icky sand, and you don't have any shoes on, and there's some like twigs in there, and you step in it, and you're like, ow, a twig. That's a one. And a 10 is like sniffing Mitch's abs. <laughs> Where do you rate this episode? <laughs> I'm going to disregard that scale because I don't understand it, and I'm going to say about an eight. How about you? <laughs> but, like, I'm sure his abs smell just fantastic. Like, he probably smells like that, uh, like, coconut sunscreen. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he probably smells like that all the time. You're just like, damn, Mitch, you smell good. Oh, I'm sure. Um, I just don't, I don't know how to compare stepping on a spiky twig versus smelling coconut sunscreen. Like I don't, there's a know huge that contrast. How can you not understand that? It's it's an they are opposites on the scale. I am fully willing to admit this is a me problem. Please explain. I I I can't figure out what the midpoint between spiky twig and coconut sunscreen is. I can tell you. Right. The midpoint is probably sitting down for like scrambled eggs and bacon with Go- Officer Garner LRB. Okay. That's, that seems like, it's like, okay, that seems like a middling time. Like, yeah, I'm with a cop. But also, like, I got some bacon and eggs. Yeah. Um, and that's nice. Uh, I'm in front of this cop in the 80s, so, eh. Yeah. But I am white, so I'm probably nothing bad's going to happen to me. That's true. Uh, but, yeah. So that's why it's a five. Oh, you would, okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense as a, as a midpoint. But, yeah, for this episode, I would say, overall, I give it about... About a seven and a half, eight. How about you? I would say around the same. I enjoyed a lot of the character development. I was shot by it. And, you know, I, so I usually watch these episodes before Morgan does. Uh, and I usually watch them maybe like one extra time uh, just to make sure for my notes. And uh, so I, I was watching it and I immediately messaged Morgan uh, I was having like, I was having a day, shall we say? Oh yeah. It was a long, anxious day, and so I texted Morgan immediately like, "Yo, this episode is crazy. There's 
bunch of character development. The first five minutes is just absolute wacky because uh, that's when you get your virgin surfboard burning stuff mm-hmm. um, and like Jimmy punching or, or Jimmy like surfing and the whole like black flag pirate thing. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, like it just took me by surprise just like how one wacky this episode was to how much good writing there was, how much I, I went from like, I, I kind of care about these characters to, I care about these characters. Um, and the fact that they've given the character development they gave to Mitch to other characters, I thought that was really cool. Um, so I would give it an eight. I, I really liked this episode. Uh, it makes me want to watch the next episode of Baywatch, um, which is great because I mean, I'm already going to have to, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I would I would totally agree. I think this is the first episode of Baywatch where I've been really excited to watch the next episode, even without the context of the podcast. Because like I like recording this podcast, I like editing it, I like having an excuse to chat with you for a couple hours on a Thursday night during this never-ending quarantine where no one's allowed to talk to each other. Um, God, isn't 2020 just fucking great? Anyway, um, but yeah, no, I would the, say no, it's not. No, it kind of <laughs> sucks actually, like a lot. But yeah, this episode of Baywatch is the first one where I've been like, oh, okay, right. Like, this is why we're doing the podcast. And yeah, I'm excited for the next episode. Got any final thoughts? My only final thoughts are um, I haven't looked up. I want to do this at the end of every episode, which is I just want to read. What the uh, what the uh, little plot stinger is for the next episode? Yeah, do it out. Uh, yeah, and so our next episode is episode four, season one, called "Message in a Bottle." Mitch and his ex-wife Gail must put aside their differences to find Hobie and two friends who got stranded on a Channel Island where modern-day pirates hide. What? Uh, Eddie and Shawnee share a shift and deal with an annoying tourist couple. Uh, so yeah, that sounds crazy. It also means we get Wendy Malick back, who it, I'm still shocked that uh, Wendy Malick, of all people, was the person they chose to be his wife. Uh, that's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, that sounds like a absolutely batshit crazy episode because there's modern day pirates. Yeah. Uh, I like, I, I don't know what that means. Uh, but, uh, what I can see also is that, um, one of these characters in the show is again, this guy who, um, I think Eddie was based off of. So we got some actual lifeguards in this show, which is, you know, pretty fantastic. Um, and it's written by, again, our fantastic, uh, and by fantastic, I mean, okay, writing team of Michael Burke, <laughs> Douglas Schwartz, and Gregory Bonin. Um, so, uh, you know, there's some stuff to look forward to there. Uh, but, you know, I can't wait to continue surfing the waves of this journey as they say with all of you yeah absolutely i look forward to next episode but all i can say for the rest of this episode is thank you so much for listening to this episode of baywatch rookie school if you want to find us on twitter our show handle is at rookie school pod 
I'm at Morgan P. Thrap. I'm at Snotsnit, S-N-O-T-S-N-I-T. And we'll see you next week. And just remember, hips, lips, and fingertips. Ew. Ha, 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 ha.